Amazing Grace by Eric Metaxas. It's a great book. It's a wonderful book. It's a story of William Wilberforce, who single-handedly ended the slave trading for England. And when you read the book, you realize in the details in this book, the incredible continuous endurance and the persistence endurance under the most difficult circumstances. You'll see the, the numerous failures. We always like to talk about successes, and we forget that before you get to a success, there are a hundred failures along the way. You read about the threats of defeat and total defeat. You read about the tenacious persistence in the face of what appears to be hopelessness in the cause of Christ. The variety of sufferings that Wilberforce experienced personally as a result of his conviction of the Word of God and the truth of the gospel. The alienation by some old friends or even family members that he had gone through and and the pain that came with all of that. The financial sacrificial giving that he gave away for the cause of Christ and the cause of the gospel. And the conviction that God laid on his heart. The threats on his life. The passion not only to end this horrible stigma of slave trading, but also a passion to see lost men and women come to Christ and be saved eternally. It's an incredible, incredible story. When William was a young man, he was born in Hull. In about 10 years of age, his family come from a very, very prominent trading, wealthy family. And around the age of 10 or so, they sent him near London where he went to live with his uncle and his wife, and his uncle and his wife did not have any children, but they were thoroughly committed Christians. They were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were using their fortunes and their blessings that God has given them to support ministries like uh, George Whitfield and, and John Newton. And many a times, both these men, Whitfield and Newton, would come and visit Wilberforce's uncle's home, and and they both left such an indelible mark on the mind of that 10, 11-year-old boy. But his mother, she was indignant at what happening to her boy down with his uncle. He's becoming one of those fanatic Christians. And she panicked. His grandfather threatened to cut him off his will. And so they forcibly brought him back home to Hull. And sure enough, His mother's wish was fulfilled because when Wilberforce ended up at Cambridge University, he became in what we call today in our modern language a party animal. He would drink and party all night. But then, at the age of 25, found himself to be a member of parliament. And there, the circumstances God placed in his way that he, at the age of 25, became thoroughly converted to Christ and gave his life completely to the Lord Jesus And then he began to devour the Word of God, began to study the Scripture. And he calls that time, that change in his life, he calls it the great change. And everything in his life from that moment on was always referenced by that experience, that great change that God has brought in his life. And after he came to Christ, he had a feeling of remorse. He thought, well, probably what he can make up for those years is by going to full-time ministry. And so he went and sought the wise counsel of John Newton, a man who himself is a trophy of grace, being a captain of a ship that was 
trading slaves and then Jesus converted him and thoroughly changed his heart and became a pastor and wrote the famous hymn that we sing often, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved the Wretch Like Me. And so young William went to consult with John Newton about his call to the full-time ministry. And John Newton had the wisdom of God and said to him, young William, you need to go back to Parliament And you need to go and make a difference for Jesus Christ where He has placed you. And so he took that as a word from the Lord. And he went back. And there that horrendous struggle has begun. As a man who's now totally owned and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he saw the Master and Lord of his life to be everything to him. He could not care about prestige. He could not care about money. And he had both. And he was ready to abandon everything for the sake of Christ. But as a servant of Jesus Christ, as a slave of Jesus Christ, he could not rest while this horror of slave trading is still going on. And therefore, he saw that as a stigma applied on his beloved England. And then God used him single-handedly. He had many others, but God used him single-handedly to change the course of history and to end the horror of slave trading. Why am I telling you all this? Obviously, I have a reason. There are many people who are critics of the Bible, who are critics of the Christian faith, who are critics of Christianity. There are many people who are critics of the Apostle Paul. And they said, Paul is wrong. The Bible is wrong. He should never have said, slaves, obey your masters. He should have said, slaves, revolt against your masters. Slave, disobey your masters. But here's the problem. Like it is the case with most Bible critics, they don't understand the power of the gospel. They don't understand the power of the Word of God. They don't understand the very heart of what God is trying to accomplish here through the writing of the Apostle Paul. Neither did they understand the context of the culture of the day. Because at the time when Paul was writing these words inspired by the Holy Spirit, there were estimated 60, that's 6-0, million slaves in Rome, the Roman Empire. 60 million. There were more slaves in Rome than free men. These 60 million people included doctors, engineers, accountants, professionals of every kind, as well as manual laborers and farm workers. I want you to hear me right here, please. The Apostle Paul and the entire New Testament believe and teach and cry out and saying, when the heart is changed, when the heart is committed to Christ, when the heart is regenerated, the relationship between slave and masters should mirror the relationship between Christ and His people. And who wouldn't want a master like the Lord Jesus Christ? Who would not want that kind of master? A master who loved us and died for us. A master who adopted us and called us sons and daughters. A master who provides for every need and many of our wants. A master who protects us from the wickedness of sin and Satan. A master who guards us and shelters us from the enemy. A master who has placed our names in his will to be co-inheritors with him. 
I signed me on. I want, a, I want that kind of master. Let me tell you something. Every human being on the face of the earth is a slave to something or someone. There are many people who are slaves to money. People who are slaves to addiction. There are slavery everywhere today. And I am telling you, only Jesus Christ can liberate you. He is the master who can set you free. Listen carefully, please. The entire New Testament does not teach us to tinker with the outward reforming of some system here and a system there, or even the human condition. The New Testament does not teach us to gradually just improve the human condition or the human nature. No, the New Testament does not call us to tinker with the outward surface appearances of the issues of life. That is cosmetics. No, the New Testament cries out saying that the real problem is the problem of the heart, that the real reformation that needs to take place is in the heart, because outward reformation is just mere cosmetics. The heart needs a radical surgery. The heart needs to be changed completely. The heart needs an extreme makeover. That's the heart of the Christian faith. And when the heart is changed, laws are changed, Lives are changed. Society changed. When people turn to Christ with all their hearts, we're going to see society become what it ought to be. Because when the heart is not changed, wicked men will always find a way to oppress other men. And so the New Testament tells us how a changed heart is to live a changed life. That's it. The New Testament teaches us how a changed heart live a changed life. That's the core of the New Testament teaching. And so today, thanks to changed hearts, as in the case of Wilberforce and many others that I won't have time to get to, there is no man owning men anymore, at least in our society. So you say, Michael, well, then how in the world are you going to apply these verses If we don't have slavery, we don't have masters, we don't have slaves, well, how do you apply this? It is a message to both the employer and the employee. Here's the biblical truth. How you view your workplace, how you view your work that God has given you will make all the difference in the world, not only in your life, but in the lives of all those around you. It really does. There are some people who view work as a curse. They really do. I mean, they dread Monday morning. There are some people who see work as just an unnecessary evil. Uh, It's a means by which we just survive. It's a drudgery that we must endure. No, no, no. That's not what the New Testament teaches here. In fact, people sometimes talk in a derogatory term about their workplace and about their co-workers that kids often get confused. Let me tell you a story. There was a lady who decided to take her son to work one day. And uh, the boy had a great time. He had a good time talking to all his colleagues, and, and they all were kind to him, and all nice to him, and he had a ball. But on the way home, he was distressed. And his mother said, what's wrong? Did you not have a good time? I said, oh, yes, I did. Well, what's wrong with you? He said, well, I'm just so disappointed. I didn't get to play and with all those clowns he said you work with. (laughs) How you view 
your workplace will make a difference, not only for you, but for everyone around you. I want you to remember this. Paul still talking about relationships in the context of the Spirit-filled life. And he said all the relationships that are between husband and wife and children and parents and employer-employees, they are all have to come under the rubric of being filled daily with the Holy Spirit. How? He taught us how when a life that is filled with the Spirit and between husbands and wives, when their lives daily, moment by moment, filled with the Holy Spirit, they're not only going to accept and live and delight themselves, but rejoice in God's blueprints for husband and wife. When children and parents are living the Spirit-filled life, moment by moment, The children will obey their parents, and the parents will not provoke their children. And it's the same thing here, the same way. He said the employer and the employee, when they live the Spirit-filled life, they will have a peaceful workplace. They will view their work as a blessing and not a curse. They will view their work as their mission field. They will view their work as an opportunity to impact the surroundings for Jesus Christ as an opportunity to witness through faithfulness and hard work as an opportunity to glorify God in the workplace. And when that happens, they will turn difficult situations and difficult circumstances and difficult people into a happy situation. When both employer and employee see each other the way God sees both of them, they will realize that workplace is a blessing from God, as an opportunity to serve God. When the heart is changed, the vision and the foresightedness about the workplace and about your coworkers is going to change. I'm going to talk about foresightedness. I heard about this guy who said, I am so nearsighted, I nearly worked myself to death. And a friend of him said, well, what has being nearsighted got to do with you working to death? He said, well, I'm so nearsighted, I can't see whether the boss are watching me or not, so I work all the time. <laughs> but, you know, that's exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 7. Look at it in the Bible. Verse 7 of chapter 6. Serve wholeheartedly as if you are serving the Lord, because you know the Lord will reward everyone with a slave or free. Please listen to me. When you have a difficult boss, when you have a difficult situation at work, when you have a difficult work environment that's getting you down, the natural thing for all of us to do is to say, well, I'm not going to work hard. Why should I? Why should I work hard for this boss? This boss is not appreciative of my effort. He's not appreciative of my hard work. I am not going to kill myself working. I'm just going to do the minimum. I I am going to get by. I'm not fairly compensated, so I'll give them what their money's worth. (laughs) I'm not going to stretch myself. Beloved, listen to me. The Word of God said, remember who your real boss is. Remember who your real boss really is. (laughs) And it's not the one you think. As long as you think that you're working for an earthly boss, as long as you think you're working for an earthly institution, as long as you think you're working for an earthly company, the slightest problem in your workplace, and you will be miserable. You will be miserable. 
But when you realized that your real boss is the one who loved you and died for you, is the one who provides for your every need, is the one who watches over you, is the one who will reward you, then whatever and whomever your earthly boss may be, you can go around whistling Dixie all day long. You go around talking to him. I mean, hell will be breaking loose in your workplace, in your office. But you are singing praises to your boss. You are talking to your real boss. Most people hear you talking and say, what are you doing? So I'm talking to the boss. Well, there's no boss. Nobody around here. And I'm talking to my real boss. Well, what are you talking to no boss? I'm, they might think you're nuts. <laughs> Tell me you're talking to your real boss. In the tough situation, talk to your real boss, the real, real boss, and say to him, boss father, <laughs> I don't care if people hear you or not, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Boss father, I know you're watching me right now. Boss father, let me glorify you in this place. Boss Father, strengthen me through this situation so that I may shine the light of Christ. Boss Father, you are the rewarder of the faithfuls. Allow me and help me to be faithful. Boss Father, help me to express faithfulness in my work. Boss Father, help me to present my faithfulness and to present my hard work as an offering, as a sacrifice unto the Lord. Hear me right. When you are continuously being spirit-filled, you will have the right perspective. And when you have the right perspective, you will have the right attitude. And when you have the right attitude, you'll be faithful on your job, regardless of the circumstances. And boss father is going to reward you for your faithfulness, even if your earthly boss does not. But Paul also speaks to the bosses. He say he just doesn't talk only to the employees. He talks to the employers. So those of you who are employers, listen carefully. Perk your ears. <laughs> he speaks to them. And he said to the employers that you should have the same attitude toward your employees that they will have toward you. Look at verse 9. And masters, do the same thing to them. What does that mean? Do the will of God as you exercise authority. Obey. And please the Lord, first and foremost, recognize that you too have a master in heaven who's watching you, watching not only every action, he is watching every thought. Be submissive to the authority of your heavenly master, and in so doing, you will be a wonderful boss. Of course, this kind of admonition to masters, I mean this is unheard of in the days of the Apostle Paul. It's just unheard of. Because masters in the Roman Empire were all-powerful and almighty, and they were absolute in their authority. And Paul says, go back to Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord. That's the foundational verse, as we remember. Why this radical change in the relationship between employer and employee? Ah, Paul said, because both have the same heavenly boss, the same heavenly master, because they both stand before him equal, because both stand before him accountable 
for their actions and for their deeds. Because both they stand before Him to be rewarded or otherwise. Because He is the one who sees the very secrets of our hearts. Now, this was radical. This was revolutionary thought. In fact, the equivalent passage is in Colossians. Masters, treat your slaves justly and lovingly, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Yet justice, justice, loving, yeah, that's how Jesus radicalized the heart. That's how Jesus revolutionized the heart. Unheard of in Rome, but heard of in the New Testament. Listen to me. A godly employer is to reflect Christ to his employees. He is to be fair. He is to be just. He is to look out for their well-being. He is to care for them and care for their interest and protect their interest. He respects them. Why? Paul tells us why. Why? Because that honors the Lord. One more thing. I don't want you to miss. Right? There's a few verses here. Um, At the end of verse 9, he said, not to play favorites, because God does not play favorites. Verse 9, toward the very end of verse 9, there is no favoritism with him. Now, when he's talking about this, he's not for a moment suggesting that you do not reward the hard worker and then you rebuke the goof-offs. That's not what he's saying here. No, don't take this to mean, you know, that uh, so you, we're going to establish communism in our society. Everybody gets the same reward. No, no, no. He already talked about fairness and justice before this. But when he's talking about favoritism, he's talking about personal favoritism for personal reasons. You single people out. You know, Paul writes a very, very small letter in the New Testament. Most people, I doubt whether you've heard many sermons from that, because it's such a short epistle. It's the epistle to Philemon. And Philemon was a master, and he had a slave by the name of Anasimus. Anasimus obviously did something wrong, and he fled from his master's house. And in Rome, when a slave is a fugitive and found, they will print the letter F on his forehead, fugitive. But as the Lord, sovereign God, wills it, Anathemus runs right into the Apostle Paul, and he thoroughly becomes converted to Christ. And Paul knew Philemon. He knew him well, so he writes him this letter, and he said, Philemon, receive Anathemus, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. Now, Christ changed Philemon's heart, and the slave is his brother. It will make all the difference in the world. How you view your workplace how you view the opportunities that God has given you, how you view your business, how you view your employer, how you view your employee. I'm going to tell you this as I conclude. It's a, a true story, and I read this a couple of years ago, tore my heart out, thought about it. There's a man by the name of Al, and Al worked as a bond broker. He was trading bonds, and his office was on the 105th floor in the World Trade Center. Al loved the Lord with all his heart. Al led many of his workers to Christ. Al saw his work as a mission field, although his family testified to the fact that many times his work 
stressed him out because so many of the things and the environment and, and the stuff that goes on that he would be tempted to quit. And Al had a hard time, but he always believed that God called him to that place. That's his mission field. And he would go back again and again and again and again. And he would lead people to Christ. Many of his co-workers would mock him, and they nicknamed him the Rev. And yet every time they got into trouble, they went to him and asked for prayer. (laughs) On that fateful day, September 11, when the plane hit the tower, Al, according to many eyewitnesses, gathered about 50 people, 50 of his colleagues, and he shared Christ with them. In the last moment, he wanted to make sure people were going to heaven. And then he prayed with them. In fact, before Al died, he could not reach home. He tried and he couldn't. So he called an MCI operator and he said, please, get in touch with my family. Get in touch with my wife, Jeannie, and tell them that I love them. Al's son, Christopher, said the following. He said, Al died doing exactly what he felt God called him to do in what was often difficult job environment. Believer, God has placed you where you are for a reason. And when it's time for God to move you somewhere else, He will. But as long as you're there, God has a plan and a purpose. Others that you may impact and lives that you will change. But there may be somebody here today who have never experienced the Lordship of Jesus Christ, never received Him as the Master. What a wonderful Master. Anybody else's mastery is slavery. But the mastery of Jesus Christ will set you free. Today, You can say, Lord Jesus Christ, I want to come to you in repentance and faith. Forgive my sins. And he will assure you of heaven. And you will begin a relationship with the most loving Savior, Master Lord. And you can do that as we pray. Father, you are the searcher of all of our hearts. There is no secret that can be hid from you. You know our thoughts before we think them. And it is not by accident that each one of us here today. And so, Father, I pray for the single person here who had not come to know you as Savior, Lord, that they would come to do that right now. And today, new names will be written in the book of life. But, Father, for those of us who have known you and we've done nothing but grumbling about our work situation and grumbling about everything else that we're going through and we have forgotten to give you praise and thanks for the work that you've given us and the opportunities you've given us. We fail to see that this is our mission field. I pray in Jesus' name, renew our vision. Renew our vision. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.